Today's guest, Sam Silverman, has invested in over 33 deals as a passive investor. The knowledge he's gained over the years of placing both his own and others' capital has led to him being a thought leader in this space. Over the next 20 minutes, you'll learn Sam's high-level techniques for picking great operators, recognizing bad operators, and what he's learned by investing in so many different deals and asset classes. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors. Welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I am sitting down with Sam Silverman. Now, Sam has been a passive investor in over 30 deals at this point. I mean, he has an enormous wealth of knowledge in this space, and I knew that it was imperative for me to get him here on the show so that we could all learn from his enormous experience. So, Sam, we're really, really excited to have you here to talk real estate and talk investing. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Tell us what got you started as a limited partner, because 30 deals, that's a lot. Were you in the real estate game before? Did you start off as a passive investor or limited partner? Or tell us kind of how you got here. Yeah. So I started off like a lot of people doing real estate as single family. And that's what quickly pushed me to be a limited partner in a lot of deals. Started fairly young, was in a sales role where your income continually grows. And if you don't spend that income, you have more capital to go play with in terms of allocating elsewhere. So always understood the concept of passive income, right? Things that pay you for your money versus your time. And thought single family because you know, lack of education, lack of knowledge, just that was the when people who don't know real estate think real estate, you think of buying a single family house, getting a 30 year mortgage on it, getting a long term tenant in there on a year to year basis. And that's what you do, just because that was all I knew. So I built a portfolio of call it 10 houses, all new construction, and actually did fairly well on them. No fault of my own. It was more of just, just a luck type play with how the market went. I quickly realized that it just wasn't worth my time to keep spending time managing a PM, trying to squeeze an extra $100 a month, right? In terms of that, that process, it wasn't worth it. So I really realized that my time's better spent in my day job. I have more upside there in terms of my headspace, my time spend, kind of all those things let me to spend, you know, hey, this makes more sense to allocate my time. So from there, really dug in, did all the whole podcast circuit, the whole self-education circuit, learned more about syndication. I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? And started investing passively there. The operators I was working with were, you know, monthly reporting, monthly distributions. It was probably two and some change years back. So that was when deals still cash flowed really well. Yep. So it was easy to go say, hey, this works. I can go keep putting more money into it. And love the concept of I always wanted to do this longer term myself once I started getting involved and realized that, hey, this is a very highly paid education course when you kind of look at investing passively. From there, it's all investing today. I'm in 33 private placements in a variety of asset classes between short-term rentals, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, debt funds, all of the place in terms of private placements, specifically in real estate, or at least all tied to real estate. And then realized there's just a big need on the capital raising side of it, where that was always transferable because I always talk about what I was investing in with peers, right? Being in tech, you have a lot of people around you who have demanding roles that take up a lot of time, a lot of volatility, especially in sales, right? You're always about two quarters away from being fired. Or you may have you know six-figure checks coming to you every quarter. So it's kind of a swing. So then just realized it's a need to go start raising capital and partnered with people that I'd already invested in previously, right? So that risk was really low. Sure. And then you know things kind of snowballed. 
Yeah. So you said you were in the single family space first. And again, like you said, very, very common. Almost everybody in some capacity finds themselves there. It kind of makes sense, right? What were you seeing? Was it the returns that just weren't good enough for you that you found better returns in multifamily? Was it a scale thing? Was it that it's more of an active role? You know, even if you have property managers and stuff like that, it's hard to be totally passive on single family. Or what was kind of your breaking point of saying, God, like this just isn't worth it? So like the exact second I knew, honestly, for a lot of that term, just fuck this, was when I had a tenant drunkenly drive their lawnmower over one of the sewer lines. And I'd spend $3,000 getting the sewer line repaired on the phone with the police, on the phone with the property manager. That was it, what I knew. I'm like, this is just not what I want to spend my time doing. The returns, when you actually look at the actuals, they're actually pretty good. A lot of those properties I had for a year to two years and made six figures on, so they weren't bad properties by any means, but it was more so is that predictable to happen again? Likely not, right? It was more so luck of timing than it was strategic buying or strategic insights or like a whole business plan executed. So one was the scale, both in terms of finding properties, the loan process was a complete pain in the ass. It was just a lot of work for a nominal return and factoring the time aspect of it. So numbers wise, looking at cash on cash or money wise, not bad, mm-hmm. but it was the time spend that was going into it that was not scalable. So yeah. I think you have to look at return, not only in your money, but also on your time, and your headspace. So the return I ended up getting by spending more time in my day job, I ended up being dramatically higher. I'm a big math geek at heart. I just like things that are like very scalable and equation driven. Single family is not equation driven. Mm-hmm. Single family is emotional. Single family is based in the market. You look at buying a property that's commercial, so multifamily storage with mobile home parks, et cetera, they're valued like a business. And I like things that you can go systematically force appreciation to. But if we get X dollars higher in rent, it's worth X dollars more, right? So like, I like things like that. So scalability, business plan execution became more relevant than the market itself. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's one of the big things we discuss. All syndicators, people in the commercial space discuss that. It's your ability to have control and force appreciation versus just kind of what the market is doing, what the comps are doing nearby and having more control over that. So this journey of a passive investor that you've been on, What's, I guess, the biggest lesson that you've learned investing in all these deals? And have you ever been burned really bad on a deal? And then what did that teach you if that's been the case? So to answer your first question, I think it ties to anything in life is it's people before anything else as to who you're doing things with in terms of deals. So for me, I can have three main criteria I look at in a deal. One is the operator, right? Both in terms of what's their track record, their business plan, does the line to my personal goals. Who are they as people, right? I want to either have massive risk, whether it be their own capital or reputation. Sure. Reputation means way more valuable than capital because that's going to be costing a lot more in the long run. So I like seeing sustained track records. I like seeing people who have done this many times and people who have skinned the game reputationally. I love seeing employees vertically integrated. All those things are meaningful to me. And I think second, it's the market. When looking at it from the investor side of it, I want to be in a market that's growing in terms of people, in terms of jobs, in terms of income, in terms of people moving there, all those things you want to see happening that lead you to believe that rent growth should naturally occur because of that, right? We never assume massive rent growth in our deals, but it's always helpful when you have the right things that can make it happen. And look at the capital raising side of it. The market is really important too, because it has to be a market that people want to be in, right? I see deals all day long from the Northeast that I would never touch just because I know it'd be a far heavier lift to raise capital for those deals because the connotation of the Northeast, right? So that's just a personal experience that I simply pass on those deals. So that's marketable, both in terms of is market good, but also is the deal sellable? I think capital raising is 100% sales. And then I think the third piece is like, what's the actual deal? Is it a fair price for what they're buying? Is there meaningful value add left? 
What does the area demographics look like in terms of helping or hurting the deal? So I think it's a lot of pieces that go together, but I'd say those three things in that level of importance is the operator, the market, and then the deal in that order. And the operator and people matter more than anything else all day long. Yeah. Because you have a great business plan, but it matters are they going to execute the business plan? Like if you look at a deal that's say a home run deal sells in two years, two X's investor capital, there can still be shit shows in that deal that happen in that process that you want to have someone who is level-headed and rational and not emotional and that they're not financially impacted by the deal themselves. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, I mean that I don't want someone who's living off the cash flow of that single deal because then that leads them to make decisions that may not be best as a fiduciary of my money and my investor's money as well. Yeah. So I think it's a variety of pieces. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and to go back to what you said, it's like, are you along for the ride for it? Are you here to take part of the ups and the downs? You know, a lot of limited partners, we would talk about, hey, you know, look at how the operators are getting paid. Look at their scale. Look, you know, is that a market that they're in or is the property going to be a pain in the ass for them to get to? Because it's the only market, the only property they have in that market, they're focused somewhere else. So all of those things really important. And I think a lot of LPs get stuck on the deal. They say, oh, this is going to 2X my money in whatever, four to five years. But a lot happens in four to five years. And yeah. the operator has to navigate that sea really, really well. So really, really big connotation, you know, most experienced limited partners bet on the jockey, right? Go with the operator kind of being that number one. So have you been burned really bad on deals or what I guess is- I haven't. Yeah. So I've been burned on a deal. So two of the first deals I've done had pref equity involved. Okay. Basically people who's the head of the LPs. And the reason people use pref equity is that their capital is simply cheaper than LP capital. Mm-hmm. Right. So what it does then is it boosts LP and GP returns in the deal. But something you'll typically see in a prep equity term sheet is they have an a lock period between three and four years. I mean, they have to guarantee the returns for three or four years, right? But their capital may be a eight and a five. I mean, their total IRR is 13 in the deal. Whereas retail investors may need a 15, 16, 17 to invest in the deal and have upside beyond that too. Their equity is typically capped in terms of performance in the deal. They may get a bit of a GP slice as well, but Something I've seen there is that the capital is tied up for a period of time, which it wouldn't want to actually hurt the deals we're in. It'll make them move a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. But something that I've noticed is that you lose the flexibility of exiting the deal early if the market dictates you should sell it early. So I'd say it just gives you some kind of handcuffs that can be better or for worse, but you can lose velocity in doing so. So you haven't taken any kind of pref equity besides that. So just something that doesn't kill the deal, but definitely makes it move slower. And as a capital raiser, as an investor, the exits and the wins hold massive weight in terms of pulling back your capital, again, an equity pop, and also the reputational boost as well. So I'd say because of those few reasons that we don't plan to do that anytime in your future, but definitely didn't kill a deal, more so just gave it some parachutes on like, sure. like behind it. And yeah, a lot of those structures too, that again, a lot of LPs just aren't really familiar with. They just kind of assume like, oh, this might just be the way that it is, but really seeing, you know, what are the equity positions? What are the first, second, what's the priority of where money flows? All really important things, pref equity, pref returns, all of those matter and should factor into how you make those decisions. So how have you seen things change from an LP perspective over the years with some different markets? better markets, worse markets, faster and slower, you know, our returns changing drastically in your opinion, do you see the future of this still being a really, really great journey? Or are you seeing some kind of red flags that maybe it's time to pump the gas or pump the brakes here? What has your experience been of how things have changed and where do you kind of see things going? Do you see it continuing going the way that it is? So returns have definitely changed the last few years that they've gone down, at least in models, because people are modeling to a five-year hold period, they're modeling cash, they're modeling an exit. But what we're seeing is cap rates are still far below the modeled exits, which gives you a massive increase in valuation. So what I'm seeing is typically tied to multifamily is that yield has gone down, returns have gone up. 
and they've gone up because of velocity. So if you're with people who can execute really quickly and get in and get out while the market is still in the shape it is in, you can then have massive upside in terms of beating your time period in the whole period, which makes your percent return much higher. Mm-hmm. They'll sacrifice cash flow right now in being in kind of a tier one or tier two market because the cap rates are so compressed, yeah. but you're getting the exits, which you're banking on, right? So it becomes more of a equity-driven play versus a cash flow play, or more of like a growth play with some yield versus you know a better combination of both. I'd say it's shifting more towards growth now versus yield. And it depends where you are. So for example, we're really heavy in the Phoenix Metro. And I think right now we focus primarily on class B, class B minus properties and B or better areas. And what we're seeing is that all the new construction going in is super high-end class A product. Mm-hmm. right? Which we don't compete with them in terms of price points. And they have to go put in super high, nice class A because the construction costs, material costs, land costs have gone dramatically up. So for us, we feel insulated that their people aren't building workforce housing anytime soon to combat the mass amount of people moving there. So as long as we're still within range of that 38% income in terms of a 3X multiple on income versus rent, we still feel confident that there's insulation there. And also the size of assets we do in that market are institutional size assets. So they'll always be looking for places to go park capital. And their cost of capital is dramatically cheaper than any kind of syndicator capital. So what we're seeing there is that they'll pay a higher price for a stabilized asset that is in a tier one, tier one B area that they can go park capital for inflation until they have other places to go use it for. So I feel insulated there. If you're like, hey, make a guess, I'd say you probably have two, three years left of like a very good run. And then instead of hitting returns, then, you know, one and a half tiers may take three to four years. So I don't see their returns really shifting in terms of actuals. I see them shifting in terms of time to get to those actuals. Got it. So what you're saying, you know, it shifts from, like you said, that yield more of that equity multiple play where people are banking on that appreciation. Is that still the play that you like, or would you ideally like to see it go back to, Hey, some deals have a little bit more cash flow now, or maybe even that's the primary play as opposed to these. So we're in different asset classes too. So if you kind of like, I view my business as private equity, not multifamily. So what that means is that we still have our core focus, which is value multifamily, class B or better properties, hundreds or more in the Sunbelt. But we also do plays in short rental space, which has great yield. Mobile home parks, great yield, right? So we focus in different areas to allow investors to have diversity to build a well-rounded portfolio, right? So I invest in every deal that we do. So personally, I have money in growth plays, money in cash flow plays, money in long-term hold appreciation plays. So it all matters kind of what your goals are. Like, for example, if I have someone who's making $400,000 a year as a sales leader in tech that does not need the cash flow, I'm like, put your money all day long into more growth plays because when I take that cash flow out in the future, your principal balance is way higher, right? So it all just kind of matters what that person's goals are, how balanced they want their portfolio to be. But we don't just focus in one area with one operator in one market. So it allows you to build a diverse portfolio and also focus in different areas of focus. Awesome. So yeah, that diversity is super important because like you said, hey, these asset classes shift to where they're benefiting. So different markets, different operators have different plays and all that really plays into a healthy portfolio. So as that somebody who might be a new LP, new limited partner, potential limited partner, kind of thinking about this might be the good move for them. I guess what's the first step to it? I mean, is it to find an interview sponsor? Is it to research markets and kind of pick what markets they want to invest in first? Or what's that first step to really getting this ball rolling on being a passive investor in different assets? So I think it's listening to conversations like this and podcasts like yours. We have people come on and talk about different things they do. And I think this is kind of a preview to an interview, right? Like you can hear how someone talks, you can hear how they think. You can kind of say, hey, you know, based on what I've heard so far, just what I even want to speak to. Then start having conversations, right? See who, who can really understand your needs and your interests the most. 
like it's really easy to tell. I probably talked to 50 plus different sponsors, very in depth. And it's really easy to tell who knows their shit and who doesn't and who actually cares and who doesn't. So it's more so on my end, like my background's in sales, right? So I've built teams, I've hired, I fired. So it's, you kind of pick on the same things for interviewing someone, right? And is, honestly, is that I use this feeling from your experience or are there certain questions you ask or kind of trigger words that so, you look for? I'm sure you'll want to hear there's like a certain thing that I look for, but the gut test matters more than anything else to me mm-hmm. still. So for context, I manage my mom's portfolio, all of her money. And when I talk to someone, I'm like, would I put my mom's money there? And if the answer is not immediately yes, the conversation is 100% over. So like, there's no quantitative method to that. It is like purely the gut test. But for me, like I want to be able to sleep at night. I want to be able to not stress out about this business. The reason a lot of people get into this business is for the freedom aspect of it. Yeah. And I'll personally be okay making less with better people if I know that it's not at risk. There's no things like that. So that's the biggest piece of it for myself. And then it's kind of going down the list of the operators, the markets, the deals, and making sure it aligns to what you want to do. And also the big thing for me is the consistency, right? I want to see consistent deal flow from them. Just because you have to go build trust again, they do one deal a year. You're like, we need more than that, right? Yeah. So you've got people who are consistent, have systems and processes in place, have scale, and also their vision too. Like I know plenty of people who their goal is to go buy out their investors. That's great for them. That's some people I want to invest in personally. So it also just matters to like the structure of it, your long-term vision, their long-term vision. The more alignment you have there, the better off that partnership can be longer term. But also too, like I'm more risky with my money than my investor's money. But if I lose my money, yeah, it sucks. It'll take me a period of time to go make it back there's no reputational risk. It's every deal I've ever brought to investors. I've written them checks for typically six figures plus of my own money into those deals. It's kind of a test dummy, right? So yeah, I think going through people who have invested with sponsors previously, think about it from like, you have the operators and you have the capital raisers and deals always. And if you go through the capital raisers, they're just focused on that. Well, the operator may be focused on a world of different things. So I think the access is really important to people as well. Like I have investors who text me, I answer. So I think it's really important to have that. And yeah, kind of that liaison who gets it from the investor standpoint is really important. Yeah. Do you see any pros and cons of, so the way you structure your business is you're more of the capital side. You work with multiple sponsors. Mm-hmm. Let's say a group like ours would bring you a deal and say, Hey, Sam, you know, we're looking to bring $5 million to this deal. We're going to bring you on versus other groups out there. Everything is done in-house, right? Like, Hey, we have our own capital people, whether they're partners or employees or whatever the case may be. Do you see a big difference in that from the limited partner perspective? Yeah. From what I've seen, the best operators I've worked with are the ones who raise capital themselves, but some people who raise their hand. There's no outbound. It's more so we're going to send our emails, we're going to have our calls and that's it. And they bring in people like myself to go raise capital. And the reason I say that is that you want very clear delineation of roles. I'm a very big believer in deep, not wide. I want people who are excellent in their key areas, right? Versus someone who's very average at everything. It's tough to go find deals, to go manage deals, to go manage vendors, manage capital stacks of it, and be really successful. Right. I want to see people who are very, very focused in one or two core areas, and that's it. And they then hire or bring people on accordingly. So for me, I've always seen better experience with people who delegate portions of those roles out and can focus on their core competencies. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think those are really important. This is a little bit more depth, right? Most people, when they think of passive investing, they don't really think immediately of all of these things. Oh, how is the structure of the partnership going? And, and what are the other equity positions I should look at? So I like how we got a little bit of a deeper dive into exactly what limited partners should be looking for. So tell us a little bit more about you, what you're offering, what you like to invest in, and potentially who should reach out to you and get connected with you. Yeah. So I think we have like a very wide range of projects that we do. So between multifamily, primarily value add, 
So we're looking at some new kind of core plus right now, newer builds, much more Mendy driven kind of higher end areas. So I'd say kind of a combination of both those two. Right now, we have a mobile home park RV fund that's launching right now, where we focus on kind of a few different MSAs there. But really, the goal there is you know a longer term hold, think ten plus years, great depreciation, you know, great cash flow, and it goes kind of hang on, refinance those, eventually sell in the future, building portfolios to sell to an institution. In mobile home parks, you get big cap rate compression with scale because they're mom and pop owned. Holy family right now, you can go buy a hundred dollar asset all day long. Mobile home parks, you got to have a lot of those get to hundred million. So I think kind of looking at that stack of it. That's a play. And then we're getting more involved in the short-term rental space. I think the whole population is kind of transitioning to using them far more. And there's a lot of alpha right now between the vacancy risk that they're compensating you for and the risk you're actually taking on. Because even at short-term rentals, basically you're being compensated a higher amount, roughly two to three X versus regular rent for taking on the risk of a non-12-month lease. Right. So I think there, there's a massive gap in that compensation for taking on that risk which will not be there in the future. So I think there's a lot of room for compression in that space in the future as well for institutions chasing yield. And same thing with mobile home parks. You got to stack a hell of a lot of them up to make it meaningful. It's something we're working on right now. And it's also just like a more fun thing to be a part of too, right? Like multifamily value add, it is, you know, bread and butter. Like it's very simple. It's past test of time, but it's not sexy. Like I think short-term rentals right now are very hot. I think you can make it like a lifestyle brand. People love it. I know when I travel with, with groups, go to stay in Airbnbs, yeah, so like a wide range of different projects we're working on and all solve different issues, right? For people. Some are more risky, some are more stable, some have higher yields, some have higher cash flow, some have quicker exits. So it all depends on what you're looking for. I think working with someone who can help point in their direction is really important versus working with a multifamily syndicator who's like, we have this deal, do you want it or not? I think it's really important to have someone who can help guide you based on your life circumstances, your risk tolerance, your needs and wants to help recommend the right assets for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I love it. I think you have such an enormous wealth of knowledge that listeners can continue to grow off of. So how can listeners get in touch and who should reach out to you? Yeah, so I'm super active on LinkedIn. And then my website, silverincapital.co. Email is sam at silverincapital.co. So in terms of people who could reach out, potentially people looking to diversify in terms of asset classes, people looking to potentially raise capital as well. So kind of working on building out training for fund managers. People want to start getting going in capital raising. So both those key areas are always have to help. Perfect. So this is, we're going to put those resources in the show notes. And of course, while you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free book, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive cash flow through Multifamily Real Estate. Sam, thank you so much for coming on today. Cool, man. Thanks for having me.